Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. Candid interviews with amazing Australian entrepreneurs who started with a humble idea and built it into something substantial and sustainable. It's the human face behind how they built it. On today's episode... In the first 18 months, assuming that you haven't got any significant funding and and generally don't, you're always close to death. It's like, it's just a fact of of startup luck. And even with the self-belief that I just expressed, you have those significant moments of doubt. Dr. Ben Hurst, founder of online medical booking platform HotDoc, says one of the most important things for any startup is to know yourself and your appetite for risk. In part two of our chat today, he elaborates on that and also how to make venture capital work for you. How did VC support help HotDoc's explosion in growth and why the patient experience is at the heart of everything he and his team do? That's Dr. Ben Hurst. Enjoy. Dr. Ben Hurst, thank you very much for joining us again, the founder of Hot Doc. We were talking last week about all sorts of things, but I wanted to go back to those days when you started the startup. Where did your funding come from? At that stage, did you have some savings? Did you borrow from a bank? Did mum and dad help you? The answer is both I and my parents were happy to just take a bit of a punt together. We, we both thought it was a great idea. We had just enough money to get our first minimum viable product off the ground. We were trialing it in my mum's medical center. We were getting our first ever appointments. Everyone was high-fiving. This is really exciting. And then I got a call from a friend of mine who worked at the Business Spectator and he said, this little press release has fallen on my desk. Maybe you should take a look. And our main competitor at the time had just raised $10 million. And we had about $20,000 in the bank, maybe four weeks of runway. So it was one of those moments where we just got to a place in time to give ourselves enough confidence that it was a good enough idea to to keep plugging away. Uh, But yeah, there was a bit of dust to sort of brush off in the meantime. So at that point though, do you think, oh my God, we're going to be swamped by this bigger player in the market. We're going to be crushed. And do you think, oh, okay, I'm going to walk away. It was one of those moments. I think what was really important, a lot of businesses are great at saying what they are, but they're not so good at saying what they aren't. And our competitor, their name's Health Engine. They've built a very sizable business. What they were and what they still are is very much a destination marketplace. And what we decided is we're not marketers. We're not, we're not, we're not marketing co-founders, but what we are is we're very technically competent people. And so we want to focus much more on being that underground plumbing being a more convenient way to to make that booking, but not just sort of a one-stop shop. And so in that moment, it was like, yes, it's going to be very hard for us to compete over there, but maybe that's our niche. Uh, And so I think whilst it was a tough time, it really did help define who we were and who we weren't. Well, it's interesting you talk about Health Engine at the beginning, but equally in recent months, I mean, just on, say, COVID vaccinations, you can go on and do a Google search of vaccinations near me and find a lot of choices. So how does your offering compete with, say, Google? which is the, you know, 800-pound gorilla in everybody's room. It is. It is they really are. Uh, <laughs> I'd say we don't compete with Google 
because we are less focused on new patient acquisition. Yeah, right. we, while, we, while we absolutely do want for certain customers to help them, to help patients find them and match with them, that's not our stock and trade. Our, our stock and trade is delivering better patient experiences. So I think our competitor health engine, they really do see Google as this gorilla in the room, whereas we see Google as probably a gorilla that's kind of a little bit distant to what we're trying to do. Playing in a different jungle. Exactly. Well put. The US entrepreneur Mark Cuban says that startup founders have to find their edge to outmaneuver their competition before they outmaneuver you. So what's your edge? I think our edge is is the culture of the business. Something that made the last 10 years really fulfilling is is working with people who are extremely ethical and very like proactively so in a way that like they hold the leadership team to account when we're considering different opportunities. And why that's so important is having those sorts of people has made us always question what we're doing and is it aligned with doctors? Is it aligned with patients? Is it aligned with medical admin staff? And if you get that alignment wrong, it really, it really damages the business. And and I'd argue probably some of our competitors didn't do that. So I think like, again, it's a lot of, a lot of people will answer, you know, culture is the difference, but I think it's not just hot dogs culture. It's that we are really dedicated to trying our very best to always be in the shoes of different stakeholders, not just doctors, not just patients. And I think that has given us the edge. And to be ethical and you know, completely grounded in values that probably comes from maybe your medical training? Yeah, absolutely. It just, I think I'm my mother's son, as well as I'm a student of the medical training that I had. And you know, that, that makes me quite opinionated on certain matters around the value systems in healthcare and in lots of different realms. And healthcare is one of them. There are bad actors that are honestly out for the, the easiest buck. And a lot of my closest friends are doctors. So I, I care about making sure that what we do is, is helpful to them and certainly not acting against them in any way. Within two years in 2014, I understand you had your app up and running. I mean, that must have catapulted the business again. So even at the very beginning, did you start to have a big vision or was it, oh, I'll just try this, see if it works, probably help mum? Yeah, it's a good, that's a great question. I think like, what is a big vision? I think anyone who wants to start a business that helps people has a big vision. And some people are lucky enough to help a few people. Some people are lucky enough to help a lot of people. The idea of getting a business off the ground, that was a mammoth task. And I definitely didn't think in terms of building a you know, $100 million business, building a unicorn, like all those sorts of notions of business side were, were so foreign to me. But, but what was what, what I did feel acutely was that there was a big problem that, that so many patients were just having just rubbish experiences, waking up at 7.50 in the morning and then dialing at 8 a.m. and waiting still 20 minutes to book that precious slot. And I just, I just, I imagine just how many patients around the country were going through that and, and just with a few small bits of technology, how that could be so easily different. So I think I experienced the, the problem as a big thing. I probably didn't appreciate the, the, the opportunity, the business opportunity like other entrepreneurs would. 
long before your success through the COVID period, which, I mean, many industries have had enormous success in the last two years, but you had fairly substantial support from venture capital. Why did you go that VC route to to get capital and how easy or difficult was it to win their support? I think when we were out with our waving our hat, it was probably a bit harder than it is now. The, there were three prominent VCs eight years ago, and their fund sizes were more in the order of $50 million, $100 million. If you look now, there are many, many VCs, even in Australia, yeah. and the sort of their fund sizes are $250, $500. So I think at the time, like the, the, just the digital age 2.0, it was just getting off the ground again. And, and it was tough. Uh, we received many no's from many people. And we were lucky enough to talk to Daniel Petrie from Airtree and his team. He's been a guest on this show before. Oh, really? Yeah, he's a great human being. He's he a bit really of a mentor is. to me. Yeah. So I, I can't speak highly of him enough. Even though at that time, Hot Doc had still fairly limited traction, he's, he's someone who really bets on people. And there was something about, especially myself, Tom, my technical co-founder, and Dan, like there was just a chemistry in that room. We had such an awesome conversation. And, uh, and yeah, that happened eight years ago. We would have had, at that time, we were making about $20,000 a month. We had maybe something like 200 doctors on Hot Doc. And now we're making you know, well over a million and a half, about a million and a half a month. And we have 20,000 doctors. And, and we never would have managed that were it not for that injection of VC capital. Is There's just time where you can't grow fast enough if you don't have a little bit more of a head start and not just the capital but also the, the wisdom as yeah. a first-time business person I didn't I didn't know what I was doing as so far the as expertise that they give you as well nonetheless just a brief answer on this I mean how difficult was it to judge how much VC capital and expertise you would take on which therefore meant you had to give up you know some ownership and control of your company? It's a really good question. The best advice I can give any entrepreneur is when you're taking on venture capital, you need a really clear goal that's probably at least 18 to 24 months in the future. And the capital that you get has to take you to that place. And you, you don't need to sort of get you know, $10 million to get you to where you want to go five years. It's quite reasonable to get a certain amount to get to a mid-horizon and then do the process again, get to another horizon. That's the way that we thought about it. I honestly can't remember what our mid-horizon was, but it was probably something like to go from where we were to more like 1,000 to 2,000 doctors. And we were able to do that through our Series A. And we've been fortunate enough to do two other rounds of investment since. Uh, but it's, it's, a, it's a tough thing. It's really tough for first-time entrepreneurs. So do you still own the majority? The founders, so the four founders, own close to the majority but no, we, we don't. And that's that's a pretty stand. So not 51%. No, we don't own 51%. It's honestly, it's okay. It's not, we don't have say a single shareholder that does own 51%. Right. So it's not like there's- Someone else sitting on your shoulders. Yeah, yeah exactly. And and I've found that every single investor that we that we have has, has been value add. They've offered wisdom. They've offered strategic knowledge. We've got a lot of doctors who, who own- parts of the business. And we've never had to boardroom brawls or anything like that. Uh, it's been just a very supportive team. 
I guess your path might be a common one. Brilliant doctor who then sees a gap in a commercial market and, you know, comes up with this commercial medical tech solution. But the path as a business entrepreneur, as you said, you didn't really know anything about business except for selling lemons, probably as a kid, would not have been easy. Mm. You could have stayed in probably a stimulating, very well-paid job in medicine. Why go out and back yourself? I think the idea was, it, it implanted itself in me. It was, it was like, I couldn't live with the idea of not pursuing it. And I, it's hard to explain why. I, I, I look back 10 years ago and it doesn't, it doesn't really make sense. There's something completely irrational to just letting a very stable, fulfilling job that I'd studied more than six years to, to do just, just fall to the wayside. That's a great thing for an entrepreneur to do is to just stress test their own psychology and say, are you willing to sacrifice what you have today for, for what is an unlikely eventuation? Like most entrepreneurs fail. And for me, I just, I couldn't live with myself if I didn't try. And yet all those years of study, Ben, to, you know, and hard study and, and slog in hospitals and intern hours and all that sort of thing. If all I was was a business person with the business acumen that I have today, I think that's me losing my edge. What I think has helped me is that I've had that medical knowledge. I've had relationships with the medical fraternity and I've been curious enough and hungry enough to to learn the huge body of knowledge that goes into trying to run a business successfully and scale it. And so I think, yes, it was a detour to get here, but I don't think that I could have left school, done a course in entrepreneurship, and then built a big business without having some kind of expertise or piece of knowledge in an area that perhaps other business people wouldn't, wouldn't really know about. There's something I want to ask about yourself. I mean, on the Hot Doc website, a, a subheading about you reads, Chess, Tolstoy and the Hippocratic Oath. What's that <laughs> all about? <laughs> I'll start with chess first. I, probably one of my worst vices is online chess and it's a game that I, I dearly love uh, but doesn't dearly love me back. <laughs> I'm sure you're very good at it. For the amount that I play, not so much, but uh, I still love the game. Tolstoy, one of the things that has always been a really important part of me is literature. I, I just love reading. It's where I, I, I learn best by reading, even more sometimes than, than practicing things. Part of also who I am is I'm, I'm, I'm a somewhat creative soul. So I'm not very process driven. I'm not like we need to do A, B and C. Sometimes I'm more of the sort of the ideas person. And some of that comes out of some of my literary pursuits. And the Hippocratic Oath, the values of this business are like its foundation. And that's what I'm in many ways proudest of, that we've managed to build a really you know, good business in a way that absolutely upheld all our values, which is, I mean, that's why I love the team that I work with so much. I think it's so refreshing and fantastic to hear of a business leader who loves fiction and loves reading and books. <laughs> What's been the key, do you think, to making Hot Doc work? There's no startup that, that turns into something without a few fortunate breaks. And we got an incredible break early on where a large medical group 
just gave us a chance. That was Hellscope at the time. And we, we were fresh faced. We had technology that, that looked good, but it was unseasoned. And they said, well, look, you guys seem like a good bunch. Let's, let's see how it goes. Wow. So they took on your booking system, you know, without any runs on the board sort of thing. Yeah, we, thought we, we, had, we had about five to ten customers at, at that point. That's not a business. But if you have suddenly 60 medical centers, you have a business. I just, I think it's always important. There's no entrepreneur that just like by perfectly seeing the future and executing every step of the way, it just happened that they have to get like a break in there somewhere. Then I think that the one that we've touched on is just, it's just obsession. You have to just be so excited by the possibility of an idea. And I think, you know, early on, we, we were just, even though there are so many reasons why we should stop, we were running out of money. A lot of the medical centers were just hanging up on us. I was doing a lot of the cold calling. It was really tough, but there was just something about it that, that we believed in. And so the, I think the key there is getting that co-founding team right. If you have people who have your back, who are just aligned with the excitement of, of making this idea happen, you can go to places you never would have thought possible. Have you ever come close to falling over, to closing your doors? Definitely in that first 18 months. In the first 18 months, assuming that you haven't got any significant funding and, and generally don't, you're always close to death. It's like, it's just a fact of, of startup life. And even with the self-belief that I just expressed, you have those significant moments of doubt. I remember I was never about to give up, but I think that self-belief was starting to wane at certain times. There was just for everyone that hangs up on you, for everyone who asks you, how many medical centers do you have? And you say, oh, we've got two. And they're like, oh, that's not so interesting. For every one of those moments, you just need this tiny win. And I think there was probably a couple of months where we just didn't have any wins. I can't speak to the very moment, but I just remember being around another entrepreneur who was talking about how exciting their new business was. And I was at this dinner party and I just, I had to walk out at a certain point. I just, I couldn't, I couldn't accept just the idea that my dreams were starting to kind of fade into oblivion by comparing myself to this person who who just succeeded. And it was like, it's a terrible thing. Like you shouldn't think like that, but it was just, that's where it became quite palpable. So yeah, it was, there were a few close calls I'd say. Risk-taking is obviously huge in startups and you've no doubt had more than your fair share of risk-taking decisions. How do you sort of master that? And is it critical to get it right in a startup? I think what's most important to get right is is understanding who you are. So there's a certain type of person who will happily exit their career because they've got an idea. And that, that is obviously someone who has a very high threshold for taking risks. There are other people that will feel incredibly uncomfortable, but they're happy to perhaps get along, get on the ride when maybe the the business is actually getting revenues, they've got customers. And so what you see, and this is an interesting thing, over the the life cycle of a company, you get the the big risk takers to come on early, the pretty big risk takers to come on next. And then as the company matures, the risk appetite of employees starts to go down. But those people are often the most valuable people at that stage of the company when you need to be a little bit more process driven. You need to start thinking of what are the things that could go wrong, which sometimes entrepreneurs are a little bit blind to. So I think my advice to anyone who's thinking of either starting a business themselves 
or who might be thinking of joining a startup is, is understand who you are. Like what, what kind of risk appetite do you have? Because that might help you to know where you should sort of think about joining during a certain startup's life cycle. Just briefly, you obviously had to kind of learn to be a business leader because you never went to business school, et cetera. Has your leadership style changed in the 10 years that you've been running Hot Doc? It, it has. I had zero leadership acumen before Hot Doc. And I remember even one of my co-founders where we had a disagreement and he said, well, you're the boss. Uh, to me, that was just this epiphany of like, I'm the boss. What's he talking about? Yeah. What's a boss? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like and this, this notion of there's this like managerial hierarchy. It was utterly yeah. foreign, even just my like sensibilities. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's been something that's new. And, and I think what I've learned is being a good leader is being true to your values, but also true to your personality. And I'm not someone who's going to be expecting everyone to tick every single box before they, they meet with me. But I am going to expect them to, to answer important questions. I'm going to expect them to challenge me back. And, and those are just natural offshoots of my personality. So I think like be, be true to thine self is the leadership truism that, that has resonated most with me. It's tough. You, you have to learn over the course and no one who's doing this for the first time is going to be great at running a business of 50 or 100 people. Every time it's a new experience and you have to level up and sort of almost just relearn new skills that aren't valuable anymore because the, the business is just in a different place. Just a couple of quick final questions that I ask all my guests. What are you obsessed about at the moment, be it a cause, a film, a book? <laughs> so uh, I'm obsessed with... I'm obsessed with patient experience. I, I think that there is such a strong correlation between patients having positive experiences and patient outcomes. And if even just by dint of having a, the, the right color button to help a patient intuitively guide and navigate them through the healthcare experience, like if we do that just a little bit, that, that makes me feel happy. But are you saying you actually think that that sort of experience helps their outcome, say, if they're ill? Absolutely. Because if let's say you, know, you have a digital first healthcare experience and because it's complex and it's not intuitive, you end up not confirming a booking and then attending that appointment yeah, right. and then getting the screening test that you needed and then being diagnosed and then being treated, things can happen. Perhaps more profoundly, I think having positive experiences both digitally, they increase the positive experiences that you have from the relationships with your treating team. If you have a crappy booking experience or a crappy payment experience, it actually reflects on, on the clinician themselves. And so like, while we're never going to be that person in the, in the consultation room, if we can just provide complementary services that give streamlined experiences to patients and emphasize building really important therapeutic relationships, then I think that we are helping patients get better outcomes. What's the toughest thing you faced in this entrepreneurial journey? Ah, oh, such a good question. I think self-doubt. It's just, I don't subscribe to this idea of like being this charismatic leader that just always feels in absolute command of what they're doing. I'm a very self-assured person, but there are absolute moments where we do go through tough times or I make bad decisions that have outcomes that are not so great, where I, I have to wonder, like, am I the best person to fill this seat? And 
uh, I hope that I continue to be that person, but it's not something that anyone should take for granted. It is an absolute blessing and a privilege to, to lead a company that touches the patient experience. And I, again, I am richly surrounded by fantastic people who are as equally dedicated to the cause. That's what helps get me through those moments of self-doubt. What's the biggest lesson you've learned on your journey as an entrepreneur? I think before I got into business, I was a little bit skeptical of business people. I, I believed that they were mostly in it because they were interested in the goal of making money. And what I've since learned is that business can be an incredibly important vehicle for delivering great human outcomes. And that's been like a really rich thing to learn because it's a choice I made, but I didn't know about it at the time I was making it. That's so fascinating. Dr. Ben Hurst, the founder and CEO of Hot Doc. I so enjoyed talking to you. Thank you for joining me on Build It, They'll Come. Thanks, Helen. I've had a great time. Really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed Build It, They'll Come. Let me know via Twitter and LinkedIn. Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know by sharing it around your networks. And I'd love you to give it a star rating on Apple Podcasts to make it easier for others to find us. Be sure to subscribe as there are plenty of upcoming episodes you don't want to miss with more amazing innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turn their light bulb idea into an empire.